0: The following program may contain explicit language. It's Monday, May 11th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist I, Mike Pesca. Today's press conference with President Trump, a pleasant outdoor affair with a main stage that the president was on, of course, and a satellite stage where experts spoke from. It ended on this note, a question from a CBS correspondent.
1: Many times that the U.S. is doing far better than any other country when it comes to testing. Yes. Why does that matter? Why is this a global competition to you if everyday Americans are still losing their lives and we're still seeing more cases every day?
0: Now, to understand the president's answer, which I will play you in a second, you need to know that CBS's Huiza Zhang, who asked the question, is a Chinese-born correspondent who grew up in West Virginia. The president did not reference her West Virginian heritage in his answer. Well, they're losing their lives everywhere in the world. And maybe that's a question you should ask China. Don't ask me, ask China that question, okay? When you ask them that question, you may get a very unusual answer. Yes, behind you, please. To which Zhang, rather than asking for China's phone number, do you have it on you, Mr. President? Or asking as a follow-up, okay, do you know how long it would take to survey 1.4 billion people? Asked uh, or stated a pretty fair response.
1: Sir, why are you saying that to me specifically?
0: I'm telling you, I'm not saying it specifically to anybody. I'm saying it to anybody that would ask a nasty question like that. That's not a nasty question. Please go ahead. It wasn't a nasty question. And he actually offered no answer to why did you ask me that or the substance of the original question for that matter. But I think it's pretty clear why he asked her that. It is because he is a gentleman and a statesman. No, it's because she appeared to him to be Asian. So, of course, he had to mention China to a question that was in no way about China. I guess the best we can hope for is that in two weeks, a chastened Trump comes to the podium and apologizes by rebranding her the invisible CBS correspondent. I call her the invisible correspondent. But here's the thing, and here's the prediction. It's not a good one. This will in no way hurt Donald Trump. Because there's plenty of tape out there of the president invoking or evoking China when even a Caucasian correspondent brought up China or didn't bring up China just for no reason. He rags on China. And you know the Daily Caller and Fox News and Steve Bannon and his flying monkeys are gleefully working up montages of the president being stupidly anti-Chinese, not because the questioner was Chinese-American, but simply because he is stupidly anti-Chinese. There is, by the way, some logical reasons to be quite upset with China's position in the world and handling of the virus. But he so badly needs a scapegoat and he also likes that his anti-Chinese rhetoric is one area that maybe approaches a coherent foreign policy stance. Maybe he doesn't say it right, but even the experts say, yeah, China's not a good thing for the world. So it's yet another win for the president and his constituency. Because it turns out that his answer was merely nonsensical and a bit xenophobic, but you can't prove that it was because the questioner was of the same nationality as the nation that he just has to deflect blame onto. So count it as a win, and queue up all those times was stupidly oppositional to the Chinese based on a question by Phil Rucker, Caitlin Collins, or John Roberts. On the show today, I'll go back to the same press conference in the spiel and dissect the main thrust before that last question. It was about testing capacity. And Trump's bungled message on that, too. But this isn't about Trump. It is about the necessities of responding to the coronavirus well, which means it must not be about Trump. But first, Susan Cain taught us the power of quiet, and introverts had their moment. Vivek Murthy wrote a book called Together, The Healing Power of Connection. Angela Duckworth came forth with grit, telling us it wasn't genius, but steadfastness that needed to be celebrated. Okay. Okay. But what if one of those traits doesn't describe you? What if you're a little bit off, but not in one consistent direction, a little different, a little weird? Well, have I got the interview for you. Olga Kazan of the Atlantic is weird and she studies the weird and she wrote a book called Weird, The Power of Being an Outsider in an Insider World. And guess what? She's here, weird, huh? Olga Kazan is a writer for The Atlantic, and I've admired her work for years. It was sort of, I don't know, a little off-kilter. She looked through things through a lens that wasn't familiar. It was, in a word, weird. Guess what? Weird is the title of her new work. The subtitle is The Power of Being an Outsider in an Insider World. It is her work. It is her story. It is her life. Hello, Olga. Thanks for joining me.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me on.
0: So I know the uh, personal story in the book is that you were weird and you (laughs) or define yourself maybe in retrospect as weird. And most of that definition is because you were the Russian girl living in the Permian Basin of Midland, Texas. Um, yes. Were you a Permian Panther? I, I know a lot of Mid- Midland, Texas from Friday Night Lights.
1: Um, I was not a Permian Panther. Uh, at, so my family moved out of the Midland area before I went to high school. But I was actually zoned to be a Rebel, uh, yes. like as in the Confederate Rebels. <laughs>
0: well, that was that's the other that, that's Odessa, right? That's the other high school there. The Rebels. Uh,
1: no, it's in Midland. Um, uh, Midland and Odessa are like twenty minutes apart. They're kind of like I don't know what you want to call them, twin cities.
0: I, by the way, I don't think you got it. This got into the book, but was was your Russian family near Odessa at all?
1: Um, no, 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 no. Yeah, I wish it had been like straight out of Odessa into.
0: Yeah, no. and that's why yeah. they got tricked. Yeah, Oh
1: crap! Um, no, no, yeah. no. It was. Yeah, we're we're not from Ukraine. We're from uh, Saint Petersburg.
0: Because there's all these people, I'm sure from Paris, Texas, just begging for a good baguette, saying, I know. they fool us." <laughs> Do you think that there is a difference between people who grow up thinking themselves as weird and then finding their group and the people who grow up uh, seamlessly in their community and then find themselves in the out group? Because you talk about a couple people like that. Like there's your, was it Emma who was, grew up Amish and now she's trying to acculturate to general American society?
1: Yeah, so there were a couple folks who were kind of in a really close-knit group where it almost seems like, why couldn't you just make it work like so Emma was one of those she was like this Amish you know teenager there's nothing like really different to the naked eye about her you know she she's like a nice she was a nice uh, Amish girl but you know she always just felt like this kind of sucks like I I don't like not having running water I don't like not being educated I don't want to just you know get married and have a bunch of babies I don't want to work on a farm like she you know I think there are people in a lot of settings like that where they just don't want to to meet the expectations that are set for them for whatever reason. Um, And that can be really hard when you're in one of these cultures where not meeting the expectations is not really an option like there's not like a you know a like liberal amish uh group you can join so you know i i I think that those people find um uh, encounter just as much difficulty as the people who are you know trying to join the amish after like going to burning man or something
0: (laughs) they allow that
1: (laughs) i I, probably not i I didn't
0: know it was very (laughs) opt-in yeah and I would think that that would be a disqualifier—the Burning Man on the resume. Perhaps, yeah. Do we, so. Your kind of weird was a little bit of, had some social anxiety components to it. Is there a kind of weird that also longs to be in a group and thrives in a group? They just didn't find that group.
1: Yeah, I mean, I talked to one guy who his issue—he he was not um, again—he nothing like like uh, weird about him uh, that was obvious, but he just never really made friends. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, just his whole life. I mean, it sounds really simple, but he just, you know, you didn't make friends as a kid. So he didn't make friends as a teen. So he didn't make friends in college. And, you know, there you are grown up and you don't have any friends. And he was kind of like, at first, when I first talked to him, uh, like five years ago or something or or many years ago, uh, he was fine with that. And he was like, I'm just going to make this work. I don't need to have friends. I don't really know how to make them. It's too difficult. And I'm just going to kind of be by myself and be alone all the time. But it it got to be like too much for him. Like he he struggled way too much with his job when things got stressful. He didn't know, you know, he had no one to kind of vent to or to um, turn to for support except for his wife. And uh, he ended up like basically, I mean, I'm not defending this, but what he did was he like reached out to women and he ended up having both emotional and uh, actual affair um, because he was just looking for kind of people to bolster his self-esteem and to to support him in, in what was a, a challenging time. Um, so he came out of that and the therap- his therapist straight up told him, like, look, you need a a circle of support of some kind like I get you that you've never done this and it's mm-hmm. scary to make friends as a for the first time as a you know 40 something but you really need someone to talk to who's not your wife and not these women who you're like kind of uh, you know trading like basically sexual favors for <laughs> uh, moral support um so I mean, that's one example of someone who I I feel like was uh, like had to quickly build up a social circle uh very late in life and and did successfully do it actually
0: Did being weird help him in any way, though?
1: Yeah, I mean, he like for a time was thinking that that his kind of loner personality made him he was a tech worker, and he thought it made him like a better tech employee, because you're kind of always tunneled into your, your work, and it's not very social. And it's very, like, kind of detail oriented. So he was like, well, at least I have like this special skill with my technology. But even he kind of recognized that eventually he needed to find a social circle.
0: So as you mentioned in the book, I do think that we as a society went through a revolution. It was the sexual revolution in the 60s and things loosened up and a vastly conforming society where conformity was emphasized uh, gradually began to loosen, gradually began to free up. There are other forms of conformity, but now it seems to have exploded and we celebrate the punk. We celebrate the uh, woman who nevertheless persisted. We celebrate the disruptor couple questions. One is, have we really loosened up or just kind of exchanged one orthodoxy for another? So that'll be question one, then I'll get on to some others.
1: Okay. (laughs) Um, That's a really good question. So the the sociologists that I talked to think it is kind of exchanging one orthodoxy for another. Certainly, I mean, uh, you know, marginalized groups, women, uh, minorities have a lot more uh, opportunities than they did, you know, in the 50s. So I don't want to like detract from that at all. But you know, when everyone has a a MacBook, it's not like Breaking Free or whatever that commercial was. Like, it's, you know, it's the same thing. (laughs) Right, the
0: the slogan is think different. And if everyone's thinking different, guess what? They're thinking the same.
1: Right, exactly. Like, so I think you have different kinds of conformity today. I think um, the styles, uh, like what I've just... Notice is that the the types of conformity are kind of broken down along political lines, where um, political groups, whatever political party you you are belong to, have like a certain um, almost like unwritten set of beliefs that people tend to hew really closely to, and it's it's kind of not very cool to to cross any of those beliefs um so you, you have these like new orthodoxies forming where i believe they're like mostly political and then the other thing is yeah i i, I feel like we've always kind of been fumbling toward uh, a revolution like i don't think it's it's ever fully arrived like people still talk about um cultural fit in you know hiring decisions which basically just means are we hiring someone who's exactly like everyone who's already here uh or <laughs> you know um you i You know, there's still there's still office culture where you're not supposed to say certain things or you're not supposed to, you know, you have like buzzwords that you're supposed to use and and things like that. Those are all types of conformity that, that we just don't think about because they're less obvious than the kind of 1950s kind.
0: Yeah. And I don't know. It is true. I mean... Sure. 20, 30 years ago, there was a lot of uh, discrimination and just the wrong way to be. And now maybe in advanced society, we wouldn't come down that hard on someone who identifies themselves in a way that wouldn't be allowed. But, you know, what about heterodoxy of thought? What about the ability to not just a weirdness in presentation or self-identification, but hey, I'm this one set of things where you'd have these set of assumptions about my thoughts and And yet I think totally different things. I do get the sense, hard to quantify, that back in the age when we were more ready to call the the punk or the non-binary person weird, and now we're not. But back in that age, we were a little more open to a bunch of different arguments. We didn't seek out the argument that told us what we wanted to hear and just cheer that argument on as much as we do now.
1: I yeah I really agree with that actually if I if I understand what you're saying correctly I mean um I think that the political polarization was at its lowest in the 50s um and I, I think it's because people didn't have these um kind of dogmas or orthodoxies that they um really upheld that aligned perfectly with one party or another and I'm I'm, I'm saying this about both uh, liberals and conservatives I, I I really think that's that's true is that you have these like kind of much more subtle uh, something I've noticed lately is is friends fighting over the social distancing and sort of like having these big fights over uh, who's like going outside without a mask on and, like, you're breaking the rules and all all this stuff. And I, I think that's because this, like, social distance... I mean, social distancing is good. I'm a health reporter. Like, please, everyone, social distance. But, I, like, the idea that, like, you can... Like, social distancing to the extreme uh, is, is, like, so... Uh, such a part of, like, liberal East Coast-like beliefs now that, like, crossing any part of that um, really makes people frustrated and angry.
0: Yeah. So... Maybe we've just become more visual, visually oriented. We don't come down. We know. Well, maybe we've also become better people. Maybe we've come to accept the person who is a different religion, or a different gender, or a different orientation, and we tell ourselves that this is the new norm. But that that's a norm that's now enforced like the old norms. (laughs) And to you know have a different way of thinking or thinking within a norm that is not the expected way, that's either as hard as it's always been, or maybe even a little harder and a little less celebrated.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, uh, you know, one other example, um, since I just, uh, like, ragged on liberals a little bit is, is, um, you know, the fact that we still, like, you know, don't consider female candidates seriously for president. I mean, it's like we've had two really qualified <laughs> women now who, uh, you know, people are just like, I just don't like something about her. <laughs> uh, yeah. And and I think that's because there's like this more subtle um, norm and belief that uh, women don't um, make good presidents and that a woman shouldn't be a leader. Um, and I think that's sort of like buried in there. And maybe you don't say it. Maybe in 1954, you'd go come out right and say that, um, you know, but in 2020, you just vote for Joe Biden instead.
0: You're right. So how does that so let's think about this? How does that interact with weird theory? <laughs> that the weird people that the weird people can bring something a little extra to the table? Maybe maybe it's that women aren't allowed the latitude of weirdness like a male candidate is more of a box for a female candidate or a female anything in the, oh, in the public a- absolutely, realm. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I mean, like that's well known that women have uh, it's called a narrow band of acceptable behavior where it's just a lot more rigid for. for well, yeah, like I mean, if you, you notice this during, um, you know, debates and things where it's like if, if you know, Hillary Clinton like laughed too loud uh that's like oh is she deranged but like anything trump yeah. says is like oh he's just like having fun out there like you know <laughs> uh yeah so so that's totally true and but i talk in the book about how yeah for it, it is it is difficult like like people who are are viewed as weird do have a lot to overcome and they uh face a lot of um ostracism it's it can be very painful um but that you know there are also advantages to being weird that are worth Um, Taking account of and, and maybe like appreciating in your in your grimace moments.
0: Yes. Then again, what is politics except a bunch of like millions of people in the case of a presidential election? Conferring their maybe not deeply considered thoughts and opinions and uh, approval of one avatar for the rest of us, so it's not it's not a perfect way to sort for weirdness. In fact, it pretty much is a competition that guarantees that the least weird person succeeds.
1: Right, right, exactly. Yeah, you want the like lowest common denominator kind of.
0: <laughs> yeah, and even you know Barack Obama, uh, for all the things that were weird or different about him compared to other presidents in so many ways, so unweird and so normal, and in fact. Uh, the epitome of wonderfully normal when it came to, you know, family norms and kind of s- just personal style, like a lack of style, lack of style, lack of sartorial style, lack of, you know, anything other than a close haircut, the least in many ways, the least weird guy we could find.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would kind of argue that he's another example of someone who has to be normal because women and, and minorities don't get as much. Right, right, right. He couldn't be...
0: he couldn't yell at people. He couldn't get all mad and lose his temper. Yeah right like he
1: has to wear mom jeans and have two kids and a dog because uh he's he's a black president and and people already think that's weird like you know he has to be normal in every other way
0: weird is the name of the book the power of being an outsider in an insider world olga kazan is the author of said book and you know she'll admit a little weird (laughs) thanks so much olga
1: absolutely thanks so much for having me on
0: There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford,
1: And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case.
0: Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. And now the spiel. testing. Testing, testing. It's all you hear. Testing, testing, testing. Testing, testing, testing. Testing, testing, testing. Testing, testing, testing. You do hear it everywhere. Donald, Nancy, just everywhere. But how much? How often? And where? Well, it turns out there is an actual goal. And this is a goal that's not articulated based on, like so many of the other goals during this pandemic, not based on what we can do and what it's easy to do or what makes the president look good, but it's a goal that was set based on the science. It was based on what we needed to do. Here is Dr. Deborah Burks talking about the goal on April 17th. First she talks about New Orleans and then as you'll hear she talks a little bit about Italy.
1: So 27 per thousand. So that is a good mark and that's what um, Italy has done about 20 per thousand.
0: So how are we doing if the goal is 30 per thousand people over a month? Well if you wanna measure it based on the articulated, scientific, dictated goal, we're not doing great. It's not an easy goal to hit. We are ramping up capacity, and we're trying to meet the minimum requirements, or as Donald Trump would have you believe, we're number one in the world. And it's not just Trump. It's his HHS Assistant Secretary Admiral Brett Girois, who says we're doing pretty well, did today in the White House briefing. Brett Girois, or as Donald Trump calls him, Admiral Giroir, Here was Admiral G-I-R-O-I-R, pronounced Giroir.
1: I think it's clear that America does lead the world in testing. I'll go through some of the charts that show that we lead quantitatively. I will also suggest that we lead in the diversity of tests,
0: which are very important to establish the testing ecosystem to keep America safe. And clearly, as we've said multiple times, no one beats America when it comes to quality. Okay but several countries lead when it comes to capacity, per capita capacity. The goal was, remember, 30 tests per 1,000 people, which the United States is still under. It's only by counting the total number of tests given that you get to that fact that the US is leading the world in testing, which for a country of 330 million people isn't that hard. So far, according to the covid tracking project, the U.S. has tested a little over 9, actually 9.4 million people because I shouldn't say people, I should say has issued 9.4 million tests because so many first responders and medical personnel and uh, maybe people quarantining have taken multiple tests. Now, a problem is that last week, the Rockefeller Foundation put together an analysis and said, we need 3 million tests a week. Vital Strategies, which is a nonprofit run by former head of the CDC, Tom Frieden, says we need a little more than that, around 450,000 a day. Now, we've never had a week of over 2 million tests though Admiral Girois claims we're at 3 million tests. Maybe he's looking at different figures and the COVID tracking project. Maybe he's forecasting what we can achieve. But he's saying we can be at 3 million tests and that will meet a criteria for opening. Here's the lucky thing, if you want to call it that. We're this country of 330 million people, but it's not like the virus is spread evenly throughout the land. And it's also not like Some areas that are heavily hit don't have other areas, maybe within the state, that aren't hit nearly as hard. And that's why New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, governor of the hardest-hit state, including the world's hardest-hit city, was optimistic today. It's an exciting new phase. We're all anxious to get back to work. Uh, We want to do it smartly. We want to do it intelligently. But we want to do it. That announcement was not about New York City. Can't be about New York City. But about different areas, upstate that aren't in the city's predicament. And then as he was speaking on the screen next to him were seven metrics for reopening. We know about falling death rates, check, and bed and ICU and ventilator capacity, check, check, check. But also there was testing and a testing threshold. And the CDC guideline of 30 tests per 1,000 residents over a month, that was one of the metrics and several areas of upstate New York met those criteria, so they're being open. Now, the White House believes it has the testing capacity to achieve a national reopening, even though they are leaving it to the states to execute that capacity. Admiral Girois explained it by citing models, some of the models I cited, talking about the best estimates. Trump weighed in and did no one a favor with his explanation. We have now, and nobody says it. They just don't wanna write it by far more tests than any other country in the world, not even a contest. Which is, of course, some rah-rah USA, USA bullshit that doesn't answer the salient question. Because the question isn't, hey, can the world's third most populous country with the most COVID-19 cases have the most tests? Who cares? We do, it doesn't matter. So what we have to do is totally ignore the president's rhetoric and talking points and only pay attention to the experts. But as we're doing so, we have to hope that all the experts need to placate and handle the president that need isn't skewing their expertise, isn't having a real effect on the plans that they're putting forth. So that is where we are. The president is a carnival barker or illusionist. Who's bombastic and irrelevant, the expert who is in charge of the plan, trying to convince us it's the right plan, and everyone's nagging doubts left unaddressed because the carnival barker can't stop hawking his snake oil or leave any insult unaddressed or unexacerbated. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly is the Gist's associate producer She wants you to know it's not a competition between the U.S. and the rest of the world because the U.S. is obviously winning. What's the point spread? I don't know, ask China. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist. He wonders who sang lead and who sang harmony in Wilson Phillips, and he thinks we should ask China. The Gist, I would actually like to see an Admiral Guar. In fact, the entire Joint Chiefs just dress up in full makeup like Hawk and Animal and the members of Raider Nation. I would say the intimidation factor would be worth at least two battleships and one B 1 bomber. So it's economical. pru Depuru pru and thanks for listening.